Hi, my name is Evan and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Sasha and I use they, them pronouns. And we are the The Baker Baker Street Street Regulars, Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Baker Street Regulars. Can you guys introduce yourselves? Hi, it's Frankie, he, him. And Jordan. I don't have any kind of preferred pronoun. It's a family reunion. The pack rats are back from hiatus. So the the three of you on this podcast who are not me have a podcast together called The Pack Rats. Can you describe what that podcast is? It is three halves of a whole idiot who are always on hiatus. It's been a little while, huh? Perpetual hiatus. We record when we have the ability to. I respect that. Yeah. And we just don't always have the ability to. And that's fine. Frankie, you also have another podcast? I do have another podcast. It just started this year. It's called the Nothing to See Here podcast. Here spelled H-E-A-R. Oh, like the, like, the, I get it. Because it's like, it's like the, it's like, it's like, yeah. Can you describe what that podcast is? I sure can. The way we like to describe it is three people with PhDs and bullshit spewing some facts to, to the audience. We have some long-term projects where I sh- talk about freaks of history. One of my co-hosts, Hannah, talks about spooky literature and gothic shit. And the other co-host, Amanda, is going to try and review every Disney movie ever made. So, Jordan, you're also bringing a level of expertise to us because you have a relationship to the Disney Corporation, which is an important part of this film. How would you describe that relationship? So, I am a former cast member in the entertainment division of the park. So I worked closely with the storylining of characters and the guest interaction as well. So so you have a good sense of how these characters are supposed to behave and not supposed to behave, which I think is going to be key to this film. So our podcast is pretty Sherlock-focused, even though this episode won't be as... Well, we'll see. I was going to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> but just to establish Sherlock credentials before we get started, do you guys have any favorite adaptations of the Sherlock Holmes stories? Absolutely. It's a great mouse detective, by far. Let's go. <laughs> we watched that a couple episodes back. It was my first time seeing it, and I, I was really impressed by it. I think it's a, a really solid adaptation. It's so good. Jordan? Yeah, I don't really have a lot of experience with Sherlock. To my knowledge, I've never seen anything outwardly Sherlock-related. But, like, I, I get the general gist. Yeah, it's like, you know, like... He he solves mysteries, and he has a partner in crime named Watson, and, you know, he's gallivanting around London. and Right. It's all a little homoerotic. So, let's dive right in, then. We watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a film that Yay! is not explicitly a Sherlock Holmes adaptation, but we'll get there. Sasha, I think you have the fast facts. I do. I do. All righty. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a 1988 American fantasy comedy directed by Robert Zemeckis, loosely based off of the 1981 novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolf. Film stars Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd, Stubby Kay, and Joanna Cassidy, and features voices of Charles Flesher and Kathleen Turner, as well as a bunch of wonderful animated cartoons that we all love and grew up with, such as Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny... Betty Boop, Tweety, 
Droopy Dog, you know, all those all those good ones. This film is the only on-screen appearance of Warner Brothers Animation and Disney Animation characters together. Mm-hmm. It's the only time it's ever happened. Presumably the only time it ever will happen. You never know. You never know. They're, the companies are buying each other up. There could be a day. That's very true. <laughs> Warner Brothers just doesn't make movies anymore, so. That's true. It could be a tax write-off. Who knows? You know. Oh, right. They'll make the movie, and then we will never get to see it. Exactly. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was released through Disney's Touchstone Pictures banners. It received critical acclaim for its visuals, humor, writing, and performances, as well as the groundbreaking combination of live action and animation. Grossed over $351 million worldwide, becoming the second highest grossing film of 1988, right behind Rain Man. It won three Academy Awards for Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, and Best Visual Effects, as well as a Special Achievement Academy Award. And this film is kind of the film that, along with Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and Company, really spearheaded the Disney Renaissance. So without it, we wouldn't have Little Mermaid, we wouldn't have Beauty and the Beast. Well, surely they were still developing those projects. Probably, but you know, this was the big push, I would say. It's funny to call the combination of live action and cartoon characters groundbreaking 20 some odd years after Mary Poppins. (laughs) Wasn't it groundbreaking then, too? Yeah. It was also probably groundbreaking when Disney did, like, the Alice's Wonderland shorts, like, back in the day with a human Alice and in a cartoon world. But, you know, we ain't gonna talk about that. (laughs) Just like having the first queer character in a Disney film, Disney doesn't care if ground has been broken before, they will break it again. (laughs) Well, it's like, I know, uh, was it like a year or two ago when Chippendale Rescue Rangers came out? The, like, live-action thing for it. They also were like animation and live action and they made like a whole stink about it and it's like you've done this before disney several times you're like the company that's best at it actually (laughs) also disney you're just redoing your own movie right (laughs) with chip and dale (laughs) and making peter pan the villain what 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 yeah did i did any of you see the chip and dale movie because it really looked like a like a worse retread of this like it seems like noir mystery it's got the live action and cartoon world meshed thing but you know i feel like it came out and everybody was done talking about it after five minutes yep i mean that was pretty much it it is it's definitely the bastard quote-unquote not sequel to who framed roger abbott yeah when did you guys first watch this movie, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? As a child. I was like five. I was way too young to watch this movie. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I was, I was definitely traumatized by part of it near the end <laughs> as a kid. And watching it now, I'm like, oh, totally fine. But like when I was little. Oh, yeah. We were all traumatized by Yeah. I even like have a note about that. I was like, the ending is by far the most not kid-friendly for a family movie. Yeah. Even though it's, like, pretty cartoony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, freaky at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I also love this movie growing up. As Frankie knows, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I know. Favorite yeah, Disney movies of all time. Yeah. <laughs> it holds up really well, I gotta say. Yeah. It's a. It's really, I mean, we'll get into this later, but, like, watching it, I was like, it, it zips along, it's paced really well, it moves really well. I think it's, like, a really, a really good movie. Mm-hmm. We love good movies. We love good movies. Frankie, do you love good movies? I I do love good movies. (laughs) Jordan, do you love good movies? Yeah, but I just watch bad movies. (laughs) That's fair. Well, let's start with at the beginning of this movie. We start with, with like, legally not a Looney Tune. 
film <laughs> called Babies in Trouble, I think. Yeah. So we get the like the beginning of this cartoon, which is about baby Herman and the pet rabbit who's been asked to watch him while the mother his mother's out of the house. Why would you ask a rabbit to watch a baby? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's bad parenting. What's funny about this is that they've really gone to some lengths to try to get this to be like the old Looney Tunes, like the animation has that kind of like pop color thing going on and a lot of the like visual gags are very Looney Tunes, but there's also like these very modern like camera angles being used. Like it's it's very 3D in a way that those old cell animations weren't. So that was interesting. It's also it's also like reminiscent of did y'all ever see the Tom and Jerry cartoons where Tom and Jerry are trying to like protect a baby while it's like no. escaping the house? Never. Oh, interesting. There's, like, a bunch of them, and, like, I, I remember them so clearly. Like, like the baby would be, like, escaping the house while the babysitter's on the phone talking to, like, her friends and whatever. And then, like, the baby would be, like, on, like, some sort of construction building of some sort, like, while it's still under construction. So, like, the steel beams and everything. That's fun. <laughs> they also made a trio of animated shorts with these characters that are not part of the film, which I think is a fun like side thing to have done we get the the reality break which is that after a fridge falls on the rabbit roger rabbit from the title not the rabbit the rabbit. well i just introduced him as the rabbit earlier a director yells cut and comes over to yell at him for getting his lines wrong by which he he means that he saw birds instead of stars when the fridge door was opened and in the corner of the room, for some reason, we see our hard-boiled detective, Eddie Valiant, and he's like, tombs. What is he, an egg? People say that about detectives. They say hard-boiled detective. Are they, are they eggs? Are they trying to figure out Humpty Dumpty? What, what's going on here? I don't know. You guys have heard that expression, right? I have. So we meet this guy. He's dismissive of tunes. He goes to a meeting with the head of the studio, R.K. Maroon. And we get, like, a lot of exposition out of the way right away, right? Like, he says about the tunes, you can drop a hundred refrigerators on his head, he'll walk it off, but break his heart. Dot, dot, dot. Because Roger hasn't been putting in the work recently because he thinks his wife, Jessica Rabbit, is cheating on him with somebody, and they've hired this detective to go prove it. The detective is Eddie Valiant. Eddie Valiant. This is our Sherlock of the film. Indeed, the detective. Mm -hmm. So the, he's like, go get pictures of, of Roger's wife cheating. We also get introduced to Eddie's like alcohol problem. Yeah. He has a thing for for the for booze. For the liquor. For the liquor, which is also a little Sherlock. That he has yeah. like, a substance abuse problem. What do you all think of Eddie? I love that the hero of our family film is an alcoholic. They don't make him like this anymore. It's really, it's really relatable, you know? <laughs> it says, you two alcoholics watching can be the hero yeah. and save Toontown. Although in the universe that we're in, eight-year-old alcoholic turning around might not be that shocking. Well, yeah. In the, in the universe of the film, there's a scene when Eddie hitches a ride on the red trolley. Yeah. And those kids are smoking cigarettes. Yeah, they are. He gets a cigarette for them. Okay, I love that. I love that scene because he's like a pretty grumpy guy for this first this first moment, and this is like the first time we see him do something nice. And I, there's a idea in screenwriting called having a pet the dog moment, and this is our pet the dog moment. Like Eddie, like we see Eddie help a kid 
onto the back of the, like he also first of all he's such a loser that he can't afford to pay for the train and he, so he's just like sitting on the back of the train to get where he's going instead of paying and sitting inside the train and he helps a kid like get up and sit on the back with them and that like it's like, it's like a humanizing moment you're like okay like i guess he's okay i guess he's an all right guy and and who needs a car when you have the great public transportation of Los Angeles? Well, you know? this is the thing: is this is like this is it's a very tightly plotted film. Everything everything is is relevant. This sets up like a subplot that's going on for most of the film, which is that there's this company called Cloverleaf Industries, to has like recently bought the train station, mm. and like has laid some people off. And we you know that comes back later in the film, but right now. And he goes to a bar that's at the train station, which I think is such a fabulous setting. Mm-hmm. Like, this bar could be anywhere. I love that it's at the train station because, like, occasionally a train will pass by right outside and, like, rattles everything, you know? I, it's just, like, a, it's a fun, interesting location to have the scenes that are here, <laughs> I think. I think, overall, this movie, all the locations look gorgeous. All the costumes look gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's set in the 40s, in the late 40s. So we meet Eddie's girlfriend, Gal Pal. <laughs> sort of unclear what, what that what that relationship is. It's it's complicated, I it's guess. It's complicated. We yeah, we don't ever get much said explicitly about what the relationship is, except that like they have some they rely on each other in some way. And later in the film, he he says, You should find yourself a good man and she says, I already did. I already found one. So <laughs> Well, so 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 I guess they're together, or they are later in the movie. I don't know, but she she wears, despite the fact that the film takes place over like two or three days, she wears like four or five terrific nineteen forties outfits, <laughs> and that's Dolores. The, the official synopsis says they're best friends, if I remember correctly. Really? Yeah, but they almost kiss yeah. at the end. Best friends who kiss sometimes. At this point in the story, we get our hero's backstory because he beats up a guy at the bar. Or beats up is a strong word. He shoves a hard-boiled egg in his mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the guy's like, to, it says to Dolores, what's his deal or whatever? And Dolores is like, a toon killed his brother. <laughs> so that's his deal, is that a toon killed his brother. And he repeatedly is like, I don't work with toons. I don't take jobs from toons. I won't go into toon town. That's his arc for the movie, mm-hmm. is like getting over the part of himself he shut off when his brother died. Yeah. I would argue. Which is fun. Yeah. It's a fun arc. It's a fun arc for a kid's movie because ultimately the way it resolves is that he has to learn to be goofy again. He goes to the bar where Jessica Rabbit performs. The It's like a speakeasy kind of vibe. He has to like say a code word to get in. The code is Walt sent me. That's fun. Which is fun. And performing at the club when he gets there are Daffy and Donald Duck. Mm-hmm. At a, dueling pianos. A different tone in entertainment. Oh, yeah. Than, than Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> yes. What yeah. a whiplash. What a whiplash. This is, that's actually is typical though. People use the word burlesque now to refer to like sexy ladies in lingerie taking off their clothes. But a, a burlesque show when they were new was an evening of like a variety of entertainment. There was always like a, sh- a shortened Shakespeare play and then the comedy bit and, you know, also ladies taking off their clothes. So th- this is just like more that. That is like, I think, period accurate. Imagine going to a strip club and they just start doing like the skull scene from Hamlet. <laughs> Two ducks just start playing the piano. <laughs> What's fun about this is that the agreement that the companies made about how their characters would be depicted, or I guess the agreement that Warner Brothers made about how their characters would be depicted is that they always had to have equal screen time to to Disney characters. So they always show up in pairs when they're really significant characters. So this scene, it's 
obviously Donald Duck from Disney adapted from Looney Tunes. There's a later scene where it's Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse together. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I didn't notice it, but according to IMDb, at the very end of the movie, Porky Pig is paired with Tinkerbell. Yeah. Yeah. Just to keep it balanced. That's cute. Yeah. Jordan, as our Disney expert, what do you think of these of, of the characters being used here? I mean, all of them were kind of predictable. Like, you put the ducks together, you put the, the big honchos together. But Porky Pig and Tinkerbell was kind of weird. <laughs> Especially, like, Tinkerbell, kind of, I don't want to say historically for the Disney company, because it's not been as of late, but she has always been the one that opens or closes the movies. Like, you see her in the castle, she, like, flies by, and there's a pixie dust trail. The direct-to-DVD used to have her come in, like, Ooh. and then I'd say, like, Disney DVD or whatever. I yeah, know. I remember that. So it was kind of, I don't know, it made sense that she was there, but, like, I don't know, kind of weird. Yeah, well, and I guess that's the equivalence, then, because Porky Pig's job is also to close out the cartoons, right? That's all, folks. Yeah. So she's, I guess she does the same thing. No, it just, it doesn't have the, like, the flow. Yeah. Yeah. And there's other characters, like, sprinkled in. Like, we see some Fantasia characters. We see Goofy and Clarabelle Cal at some point. We see, like, a, like just a bunch of different yeah. cartoons at some point, so. Pinocchio's yeah. in there. Pinocchio's in there, yes. I missed Pinocchio? When was Pinocchio? He's at the end. He's in the big group. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a line. A real boy? I don't know. <laughs> I don't oh, know what right. it was, but... <laughs> It was. It had to be something about a real boy. That's his only character. This is it's all he does. He's just like I'm scared of whales now. <laughs> he he has a sign that says "fuck whales." Fuck whales. <laughs> so so uh, at the bar is Marvin Acme, the gag king, Wiley e. Coyote's good friend. Oh, don't make me cry. <laughs> Steve Martin from Looney Tunes back in actions, <laughs> good friend. Yeah, and he he owns a gag factory, which is a uh, like across the lot from the uh, Maroon, RK Maroon's studio. studio. And he is here to see Jessica Rabbit, who comes out to perform her song, Why Don't You Do Right? So good. Good. Thoughts on Jessica Rabbit? Can I get my thoughts on Marvin Acme instead? Yeah, hit me. Yeah. Bit of, bit of a pervert. Also, a <laughs> landlord? Gross. <laughs> Owns Toontown? Disgusting. He does own Toontown. That's true. What do you think the rent in Toontown is? I don't know. Uh, he seems too good-natured to make everyone pay for it. I- I'm also really unclear on how big Toontown is. Because land development gets important later. But no one ever wants to do much with the area. Uh, yeah, every kid's movie, we love talking about land development. <laughs> it's it's typical of the noir genre to talk about land development, apparently. It mm-hmm. is. So this, this, this is mostly a noir. Yeah. LA, the game yeah. LA Noir, the big plot, is the freeway. There's a, a couple things that happen here in this scene as well. One of my favorite jokes from when I was a kid is that he ordered to drink, quote, on the rocks... And then he he realizes the second too late that he's surrounded by tunes who are going to try to make a gag out of that. And he goes, I mean ice! <laughs> and then they bring him a drink with rocks in it, which I think is very funny. That is funny. Although yeah. I did have to have that explained to me as a kid, because I was like, what do you mean? Why is that a thing you say about drinks? <laughs> I also like that Betty Boop is here. There's this bizarre level of, like, number of implications from her being here, because she's she's black and white, 
and she's out of work because all the cartoons are in color now, which raises a lot of questions. And she's just like hanging out as a cigarette girl at the at the club. Is that racist? Is it racist? Tunes racist? Oh, against black and white tunes. She's like the yeah. only black and white tune we see. So yeah, it's not something the film is really like trying to go into. Yeah, I, I don't know. I also like. How did all the tunes start being in color? How are tunes yeah. created? What happened to the rest of the black and white tunes? When a mommy tune and a daddy tune love <laughs> each other very much. So anyway, Jessica Rabbit comes out to do her number, and and Betty Boop seems, like, envious. Oh, no, I thought she was, like, bisexually bisexual coded. She's like, isn't she pretty? It, it kind of is that, yeah. Bisexual icon Betty Boop. Yeah. We're holding on to that for a queer subtext for later. <laughs> yeah, so Marvin Acme is, uh, Frankie, as you said, kind of a pervert. He seems pretty into this rabbit, this rabbit lady. She's a human woman. Oh, you're oh right. She is, she is a human woman. I guess she's just she took her husband's took the last, last name. name rabbit. Yeah, she's just stripping a rabbit. She's just stripping a rabbit. So maybe she's the pervert. She's a tune. So. I called Agme a pervert because he's there every night just to see this one woman. Yeah. He also he like it's kind of an asshole because he, his first interaction with Eddie Eddie Valiant is to spray him with the ink from his pen, mm-hmm. and he's like, "This is a plot device that'll be important later." <laughs> also, can we talk about since we're talking about Jessica? Yeah, I, I know it won't be until later in the movie, but it's implied that like. Roger has good D. <laughs> is it? Yeah. When when and how? Because I, I was about to say the opposite. I was like, maybe they are, because they're tunes, they don't have relations. Well, because when Roger is, like, driving a car maniacally through Toontown, Eddie's like, is he a better lover than a driver? And she's like, you better believe it. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Gotta have something for the parents. <laughs> she, she also implies later when they're chained up, that he is better than Goofy. Oh! She says better than Goofy. Oh, but I thought... Wait, do you... Are you suggesting that you think she's slept with Goofy? Because they don't They are... don't ever say what the line means. She just says better than Goofy. But I will say that earlier in the film, Roger watches an, an animated film of yeah, Goofy and yeah. says nobody does it like him. So I think he's just ref- she's just referring to his ability as like a joke smith, as like a as like a goof. Yeah, but I like to think she had a little fling with Goofy. Can we can we start the conspiracy that she is the mother of Max? Can we start that of Max Goof? Yeah, and that's why Goofy has a kid. <laughs> oh wow, we're, we're I didn't expect to be unearthing the the racism. <laughs> and the sexual misconduct at the heart of this film. So Jessica performs, and then she goes to her dressing room. Mr. Acme also goes to her dressing room. Mm-hmm. Eddie is snooping around. He gets kicked out of the club, but luckily he gets kicked out right by Jessica's dressing room window. He ends up outside the the dressing room window, and he takes photos of Jessica Rabbit and Marvin Acme playing patty cake, mm-hmm. which is... Like a thing people say as a euphemism for an affair, apparently? Is it? That's what my parents told me when I watched it as a kid. Have, have, is this a thing that either of you have heard of? Like, that's the joke, is that they're literally playing patty cake? I've heard it as, like, a euphemism for sex, but, like, not as a kid, obviously. Well, sure. 
Yeah. But it's not something like anyone from our generation would use. Yeah, it might just be a like it's you know, it's been forty years since this movie came out almost and it's lost in translation. I think that that's the joke though. Yeah. So they show Roger the photos back at the Maroon Cartoons office. He blows a gasket, runs off desolate. The next morning, Marvin Acme is found dead in his factory because a safe got dropped on him, mm-hmm. which is the way a tune would kill somebody. And Roger is the only suspect. Right. And this is also where we meet Judge Doom, Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. The scariest motherfucker ever. Christopher Lloyd, anytime he's in a movie, he, he eats it up whole. And this is no exception. He is delivering an incredible performance in this film. I love everything he's doing. It's so good. I, I need to watch his entire filmography. I watched one of the Adam Sandler movies for the first time this year, around Halloween. And I thought he was terrific as Uncle Fester in that. He's so he's so big and so cartoony. I just love him. And I love him in this, because he's playing this, like... this. As soon as you see him, you know he's got to be the main villain. He dresses entirely in black. Big hat, scary face. Big walking cane that he whacks down onto Eddie's hand the first time they meet. And he's like, I am, I'm in charge here. I have jurisdiction. Which is, like, not how judges work. Yeah, alright. Can we talk about that? Yeah, okay. Actually, <laughs> Fra- Frankie, we didn't say this at the beginning. You passed the bar. Yeah. Can we talk about... Yeah. About what's happening here with the jurisdiction situation? One, he said he was elected the judge of Toontown, which seems like a completely different jurisdiction than L.A. So he doesn't have jurisdiction here. Two, he's a judge. He shouldn't be conducting an investigation. Yeah, I don't know why the character isn't Detective Doom or something. And then he says... It's Police police Inspector Doom or... I think the better one would have been District Attorney Doom. Yeah. He also says he's trying the case. Judges don't try cases. This man is nuts. <laughs> I mean, we later find out that he is nuts, but everyone goes, everyone thinks he's in the right for most of this movie. So. <laughs> so really, there's a lot going on. A lot of miscarriages of justice occurring. He also has deputized his own police force. Judges can't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, his police force are cartoon weasels, one of whom is in a straitjacket, never addressed. <laughs> he carries a knife with him. And he he ends this scene by murdering an innocent cartoon shoe. Because they have to respect the law, Evan. Right, but the, the shoe hasn't done anything wrong except for, first of all, the, sh- the shoes, all the cartoon shoes get out of a, a box. And they're all alive. And they're tunes. Why are these alive tunes being kept in a box in the Marvin Acme warehouse? That seems wrong, actually. <laughs> because tunes aren't people. I guess, but like mostly they like do their own thing and seem to have like a choice of their own life. Why are the bullets stuck inside the the briefcase at that one point? Oh yeah, I mean that's the thing is later we see cartoon bullets that Eddie Valiant has had in his car, I guess, or in his briefcase. Yeah. For years, and, like, they've just been sleeping, and, like, that's wild. Imagine if someone did that to Roger. Would he just hang out for a while? Do they need to eat? I guess not. They're they're tunes. I guess, like, the point is that they're cartoons, which means that, like, they only have those needs if it's, like, relevant to the situation or funny. Yeah. I guess. Do they have urges? 
that one Jessica Rabbit lookalike does. So sure. does the baby. That's true. So does the baby. So does the baby. Okay. So all the shoes get corralled back into a box, except for one, which like is like meekly hanging out near Judge Doom's shoe. A little dog. Like a little dog. And he's like, I've invented this combination of various paint thinners, basically, called that I call the dip. Which kills Toons dead. <laughs> and there's a detective who's only in this scene, a police detective, who's like, we used to think there was, wasn't a way to kill a Toon, but Judge Doom found a way. And it's it's this, you know, scary-looking vat of acid green, yellow, steaming liquid that he dr- drops the shoe into after putting on gloves. No, no, no not, not drops. Slowly dunks it in yeah. like an Oreo cookie in milk. Right. He's not even using proper cookie dunking technique. So, so that's, that's freaky, I guess. It's, 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 it's traumatic, really, when you really think about it. R.I.P. to that shoe. R.I.P. to that shoe. Let's take a moment of silence. Up some chat, everyone. (laughs) Back at Eddie's apartment, he runs into baby Herman, who is like, you should take my case. Marvin Acme has a missing will, and that's what this is probably all about. And he's like... Screw you, I don't work with tunes because he hasn't completed his character arc yet. Right, and this will basically designates what's going to happen to Toontown. Yes, yeah. Okay. He's like, because Baby Herman is like, he was. He said he was going to leave Toontown to us, but the will hasn't been found. And then, like, basically immediately, Eddie is looking at his... Photos that he took. Photos that he took, and he realizes that the will is visible in the photos he took in sitting in... Like the jacket pocket he was wearing. Like he he took the will his will with him to the club like you do. As a lawyer, this is the second painful moment. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you carry your will around you everywhere, Frankie? Absolutely not. In fact, once you have a will made, you should have the original locked up in a safe place in your house or somewhere that other people can access when you die. Not a safety deposit box. And copies should be in your attorney's office. So, well, this is the question. At the at the end, this will is found. It takes the entire movie to find the will, sort of. And it would have had to have been notarized to, to be valid. Mm. Well, no. I don't know what California law is, but, like, in PA, you can technically have a will that doesn't need to be notarized. It, it just has to be signed. But if it's not notarized, then you have to have two witnesses that like recognize the hand or the signature to say, yeah, this person signed the will. It's a valid will. Valid will. So them showing up and physically having the will like at all, like in, like, like in front of the audience of the movie at the end of the movie, doesn't seem like it's going to do much good because just to like spoil where this is all going in the absence of the will, someone put in a bid to buy Toontown that, that if the will illegal. isn't found, what? Who opened an estate? Who's selling the property? <laughs> right. If the will isn't found by midnight on the second <laughs> night of the, of the movie takes place, and then, according to the movie, 2 and 10 goes to the highest bidder. And we don't know who the highest bidder is for a while, we just know that somebody for, working with Cloverleaf put in the large bid, and, like, Eddie finds the will. Like, he has the will at the end of the movie, but does he, but, and I guess the police are there, but like, do they tell anybody, <laughs> you know, like, do they, do they have to present it to somebody before midnight they, or is it just enough oh, for a detective oh. to know it exists? 
I get because like where does they send Dolores somewhere in the middle of the movie? Do they probate? They yeah, say, yeah. Go they, to probate. Oh, the, right. To figure out to find out that this is happening. That the that the that, the, that the, somebody is selling the estate. I guess that that is the, probably where you want to take it. Right, but they but they have fifteen minutes left at the end of the movie before the big climactic action sequence. They find the will at the end of that sequence, and then they're I mean they're not in probate, you know. No, the detective will, I guess, just testify. Okay. Frankie, I have a legal question for you. All right. If it is written in in a disappearing ink, is it even, like, legally binding? Yeah, it was there. It was still written. And it reappeared. Okay, but the question is, how long is it going to stay reappeared for? (laughs) Yeah. I think it's permanent reappearing. Right, because it's disappearing, then reappearing, so... Poor Eddie, by the way. I don't know if he has more than one shirt, because... <laughs> His shirt got ruined for narrative convenience. Yeah, disappearing, reappearing ink. Because it, it does... The way that the film works, it does seem like the ink disappears for about a day and then reappears forever. Except yeah. that would mean that he wrote the will in disappearing ink immediately before going to the club. Yeah. Maybe he knew he was going to die. Well, he dies the next morning. Maybe he knew he was going to die. He had a bad feeling. Ooh, bad ooh, feeling. Ooh. Also, does Jessica Rabbit know? We're skipping all over the place now. So, just to establish what happens, Marvin Acme, the the morning of the first day of the movie, writes his will in disappearing ink, goes to the club with Jessica Rabbit, plays patty cake, leaves the will with her, but she doesn't know she has it. It seems like because it's just blank paper at that point. Because it's just blank paper, so he doesn't. He just leaves blank paper in her room, and she's like, "Oh, weird." Okay, she doesn't know what it is. Neither does Roger. Neither does Roger because he finds it and writes a love letter to Jessica on it. In lipstick. In lipstick. In her lipstick, which he then is carrying around for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that at some point Eddie puts together that it must be the will. Yeah. Oh, she mentions the blank piece of paper. Yeah. At some point. What does she say about it? She mentions it because she shows up in like three scenes from now. She shows up at Valiant's apartment. To, be, to say her most iconic line, I'm not bad, I've just drawn that way. Uh-huh. Uh, and get him in trouble with his girlfriend. I forget why else she's there. And she, but she mentions that he left behind a blank piece of paper. Yeah. But I forget why it comes up. Cinema. <laughs> anyway, before all that happens, Roger shows up in Valiant's bed. <laughs> Roger's been there, hiding. Right. From the weasels and from the police. He didn't know where to go. He, he asked the entire neighborhood <laughs> where Valiant lives. Right. And only the guy who runs the liquor store knew, which which is sort of damning, actually. That's funny. Which is a, yeah, it's a good joke. It's, one, well, I think very much in the spirit of this movie, it's a it's one, funny, and two, revealing about the character. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, you know, smart as well. So, Roger asks Eddie to help him, you know, because he's framed for murder. So he's like, please, I didn't do it. Help me out. Roger also says, I could never hurt anybody. My whole purpose in life is to make people laugh. Which also raises questions about the like ability of tunes to lead free lives and also what the hell is wrong with our villain who is also a tune what was his purpose in life right right <laughs> so eddie a lot agrees of questions. eddie agrees to help we have our we now have our sherlock and watson roger cuffs handcuffs them together kinky kinky this feels like the weasels show up to to search Eddie's apartment, and Roger being like a main character in the film now for the first time feels like a genre switch. Like it feels like 
because he's like it feels like we've gone from this noir I hate my life detective thing like we skipped over the scene where he like found an old photo of his brother and drank himself to sleep mm. like you know it suddenly there's a huge tonal shift and we're doing like slapstick all the time in a way that I think is like makes sense like like Roger becoming a main character changes the genre of the movie yeah yeah fun the handcuffs don't really matter yeah uh, they go to a safe room at the bar, and while Eddie is trying to saw through the handcuffs, uh, Roger gets out of them to hold the crate that he's doing it on steady so that he can saw better. <laughs> and he says, and he's like, you could have got out of them any time. He's like, no, only at a moment that was, only at a time that was funny. <laughs> Which I think is interesting. We learned that Cloverleaf Industries is after Toontown, that Maroon wasn't, that the pictures were a setup to try to blackmail Marvin Acme to sell his plot of land. To R.K. Maroon, we find out, find out the midnight thing. R.K. Maroon gets shot. Oh yeah, R.K. Maroon gets shot. The longest pistol. Yeah. Before that happens, Judge Doom shows up at the bar. No warrants. No warrants. No warrants. No, just just shows up. Yeah, he just shows up with his secret police force to try to nab Roger, which he does by playing the first part of shaving a haircut, which Roger is unable to resist completing but they get out of it with widely know-how. Well, no tune is able to resist, so we have to wonder how the weasels and somebody else is able to resist it. Yes, we don't have to talk around it. Judge Doom is a tune we find out at the end of the movie. Maybe because he started it. Maybe. I also can't resist it. You're just, like, knocking on the walls during the movie? Yeah. <laughs> we keep getting references to to, like, laughter being powerful and how the weasels, like, have to stop laughing and it just comes up a couple as a kid i didn't realize how time worked so i didn't know this movie came out well before the lion king because judge doom says if you laugh you'll kill yourselves just like your hyena cousins and i thought he meant the hyenas from the lion king as a kid died in this movie (laughs) from laughing too much they they escape the bar and we meet a new side character, Benny the Cab. Yeah. Who Roger knows from Toontown. He's just an animated cab. Uh, and there's a big car chase. They'll they'll get away in Benny the Cab. It has my favorite joke in the movie. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. What do you call the middle of a song? A bridge. And then they, like, jump over a bridge. <laughs> I have somewhere at my parents' house a picture of me sitting in Benny the Cab. Back when Toontown was the thing at Disney World. Yes. <gasps> good old days. Honestly, I don't know why they don't do more of this in the parks. It's such a good movie, and I feel like it's a classic. In the late like 90s, natural. Roger Rabbit was, like, was huge, like huge in the parks. I guess they do have a Toontown. They do. I, I, I mean, I guess they're trying to re- revamp like revamp it with Mickey, Minnie's Runaway Railroad, but... To revamp what? Toontown. Oh. Especially in Disneyland. Yeah. But, like... I don't know. I'd love to see more Roger in the park again. Was the like late 2000s MMORPG Toontown related to this IP? Because that no. was a Dis- Disney owned that. No. But it, but it wasn't any of this iconography, I don't think. No. I played a lot of Toontown. No Roger Rabbit. Yeah, completely different villains. The, but the villains were like kind of corporate. They were, but they were like all in suits. 
They were like, but they were like all like super they were like the right. the the anti fairies. Yeah, they're very different visuals. I was just gonna say, like the anti fairies in Fairly Odd Parents. Yeah, that's what they remind me of. Kids' cartoons just have a thing of like the opposite of fun is men in suits. Men in suits. They're not wrong, and they're not wrong. There's something I want to point out about this point in the movie, which is that Eddie's journey, like character arc, like every step of the movie takes him closer to like having to uh, be in Toontown until he ultimately gets there. Like, first he works on a case that involves tunes, and then he's, like, directly working with a tune with Roger, and then he's, like, driving around in the tune until finally he has to, like, go to Toontown. Like, I just like, in terms of the plotting, that he keeps having to move his goalposts of what he'll accept mm-hmm. and and how much he actually wants to avoid tunes. I just I just like that. Yeah. This is where we get Jessica kidnaps Roger... Eddie goes to... Toontown. Well, Eddie goes to... First, he goes to Maroon's office to be like, what the hell's up with this deal? And Maroon gets shot by someone who, for like 10 minutes of the movie, we think is Jessica. And then we find out is Judge Doom. He has to go to Toontown, finally, chasing around until he finally runs into Jessica. And she's like, hey, Judge Doom is the villain of this movie. And then they have to go... (laughs) It's immediately time to go to the confrontation. They leave Toontown. Judge Doom spills dip on the road... Which like melts Benny's wheels. Mm-hmm. Uncl- the a modern movie would take like a millisecond to tell you whether or not he's going to recover. This movie never tells you. <laughs> they, we never find out. He's just droopy for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Well, he he comes back like at the end of the movie with the police and like he's driving, so he's fine. Okay, he recovered. Yeah, he recovered. I think this leads to the best visual gag of the movie of a car yes. driving a car car driving a car <laughs> yeah. yeah it's so good so yeah so the, uh, they kidnap jessica and eddie and eddie and and then roger chases after mm-hmm. with benny driving yes so good oh before eddie enters toontown first of all he arms himself with with cartoon bullets and then second of all he quits drinking immediately yeah so just I don't know. That arc is done, I guess. <laughs> Work with the tune and you'll quit drinking. Alcoholism is best solved by hard work, I guess. Not on the alcoholism, just on other stuff. <laughs> oh, while he's in Toontown, there's a lot, it's just a lot of back-to-back psych gags. But Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and Tweety Bird basically try to murder him. <laughs> basically, but you know. I just want to underline that that happens. He's like <laughs> hanging from a flagpole. And Tweety's like, like starts pulling his fingers off. This little pity went to market. <laughs> Which, like, I think is out of character for all three to try to murder somebody who has not provoked them. Like, I don't think that's out of character for Bugs. No, no, no. I think it is. Like, one of the rules of the Bugs, <laughs> one of the rules of the Bugs Bunny cartoons is that he has to be provoked. He has to. Like, he, the, all the Bugs Bunny cartoons, he's like minding his own business, and then someone does, you know, it interrupts him somehow and then he's like well this is war but in this one he's like they he's just is skydiving with mickey mouse and eddie's also there and they like well we'll just kill this man i think because he asked Uh he asked them for a spare parachute and he gives they give him a spare tire he just asked for a spare yeah so really that's on him mickey mouse saying you could get killed is a great line (laughs) (laughs) you can get killed (laughs) oh good anyway big comic resolution we end up at the acme factory where judge doom is preparing to destroy toontown destroy toontown 
and make a freeway. And make a freeway because he owns Cloverleaf Industries. Well, he's not making the freeway. He's making yeah, the he hotels is. and the gas stations and the car dealerships oh. on the side of the freeway. Well, it's called Cloverleaf Industries, so I figured he was making the freeway too. He's just freeing up the land for the freeway because Cloverleafs are a highway yeah. exchange. Well, because I think they said the freeway is going to go past Toontown. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm. I think he's also involved in the land development. He's going to build the shitty rest stops. Yeah. He also bought up <laughs> the train, the public transit, so that he could close it down so that people would have to use the freeway. Don't we love that the villain is capitalism? It's really good. And he has this giant like machine with like a giant vat of dip. Yeah, which is also, like, it seems like he's gone through, like, both legal and extra-legal channels to be able to do whatever he wants with Toontown. So this seems a little extra. Like, he could just evict them all. Yeah, he owns it. Or he's about to own it. He Yeah, so, so like, I don't know how the courts work. I guess he's the judge. Presumably, as a landowner, he could tell them all to get off. But I don't think he's protected from genociding them. Yeah, you can't do that. H.H. Holmes learned that. Right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know you're not first in California law, but... Yeah, I think that's pretty universal. Just because you own a building or land, you can't kill the people on it. I mean, I'm just wondering about everybody's commute, then, from between Toontown and Human World. Do they have a public transportation? No, they all have to go through that spooky tunnel. No, I don't think they need to. I mean, the thing is that, like, Toontown backs up on Marvin Acme's factory, and Marvin Acme's factory is, like, right next to the studio. So as long as they're all working on on the lot, it's like a walk. Is there a door? Maybe. I mean, yeah, Eddie does have to go through a long spooky tunnel to get to Toontown. That's true. And they have to break the wall to use the dip. Right. So um, maybe there's a bus. I don't know. (laughs) The Toontown bus. Maybe a trolley. The Jolly Trolley. The Jolly Trolley. So I'll just sketch in really quick the details of this big confrontation, which is that Eddie learns to be goofy in order to get the weasels to laugh themselves to death. Doom reveals that he is one, a tune, and two is the tune that killed Eddie's brother. Scariest part. Scariest part. Right. Oh, Scariest part nightmare. is that Eddie like, uses the various... <laughs> they introduced all of these earlier in the movie. There's a very, like... Chekhov's portable hole thing going on where they're like, hey, here's the here's some of the gags that are just hanging out around an Acme's warehouse. I bet that'll never be relevant. He uses all of them to to have a big like comical fight, which ends with him opening the like dip spray nozzle on directly onto Judge Doom, who like melts. Melts screaming into the floor. Mm-hmm. Like the Wicked Witch of the West. Like the Wicked Witch of the West. This is the part that freaked me out as a kid. Yeah. The part that freaked me out was when he, like, reanimates himself and, like, inflates himself again, and then his voice goes high-pitched with the red eyes. Yeah. That's That's scary as fuck. That's what got me too, Sasha. Yeah, I remember not enjoying that. Yeah, it's... It earns that that PG-13... Is it PG-13? I think it's just PG. Oh, this is before it was PG-13. Didn't exist, yeah. But today it would definitely be PG-13, right? It have to be with all the sexual innuendo. Yeah, nothing's ever PG anymore. Roger also finishes his character arc because he manages to see stars when a big pile of pile of bricks gets dropped on him, like he was trying to at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> so I guess that's his character arc. And also, 
there's the like comparing him to Goofy line. Right. Which I think is also part of that. You're better than Goofy. Better than Goofy. Jessica Rabbit, great character. Yeah, she is. I hit him with a frying pan and put him in my car. <laughs> put him in the trunk. And put him in the trunk. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Some really good line deliveries from Kathleen Turner as Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> I took the note, get dipped, idiot, about Judge Doom dying. Get fucked. <laughs> the, while they're focusing on like getting themselves to safety, the machine with the dip like barrels through the wall into Toontown. And then is hit by a train. Is immediately hit by a train and goes off screen. So I guess it's fine. <laughs> I feel like maybe it's not fine, though. Well, the dip all got poured onto Judge Doom and the floor of the factory. Oh. Yeah. There's no dip left in the machine. Yeah, there's no dip left in or the machine. Or there's, like, only traces of dip left in the machine. Like, yeah. very little. But it's not gonna... Okay. Anyway, they find the Will happy ending. The Will is the note that Roger was writing on, that, and it was in disappearing and reappearing ink, so... Yes. And Toontown is given to the tunes. Right. And Eddie kisses Roger, which is also the end of his character arc, because he, like... Is, pretty gay is well he's like being goofy and like admitting that he can like rely on other people and i don't know i don't know roger kisses him earlier and he's like don't do that again and then he kisses roger at the end and it's you know it's it's nice he learns how to be less homophobic it also feels like it also feels a little like scrooge like like scrooge going to cratchit at the end of that story and like pretending to be mean and then being like I'm raising a salary. <laughs> it's kind of that. I don't know if this is really a Christmas Carol story. Boy, what day is it? Why, it's Toontown <laughs> Appreciation Day, sir. Yeah, the like past, present, and future thing of Christmas Carol doesn't really happen here. But there is, you know, it is a story about a grouch who, like, lost his partner in crime and, like, meets a new group of people who teach him to appreciate his life. I'm just saying, I mean, we're going to talk in a second about whether or not this is a Sherlock Holmes. I'm just saying it might also be a Christmas Carol. (laughs) He does have to deal with his past and think about his future a little bit, too. Anyway. That's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Y'all, what'd you think? I love this movie. I love this movie. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Like, it's, it's one of the perfect films, in my opinion. It holds up. There's only a couple moments where I was like, oh, or that joke might not land anymore. Oh, like what? The Native American bullet. Yeah. That destroys the bottle. And then the Harvey joke. I like the Harvey joke, but I get that why it wouldn't land. I like it because I know what Harvey is. Yeah. Kids might not know what Harvey is anymore. Totally. That When the Native American joke happened, I was like, is it a commentary about how the 40s didn't have a very progressive view of Native Americans, or is it just the 80s not having a very progressive view of Native Americans? <laughs> Probably better. I mean, because the thing is, this film is only set 40 years before it came out. <laughs> so we are we are actually, right now, we are nearly as far away from this movie coming out as it was from when it was set. Isn't don't, that weird? No, I don't like that. <laughs> don't, don't, why, why do you say such things? <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That's a weird one. So the question is, is it a Sherlock Holmes? Is it a Sherlock Holmes? So let's do evidence for and evidence against. Is anyone like, this is definitely not a Sherlock Holmes? I am. Yeah, I'm leaning towards it. I'm not like a hard line, but... I'm I'm dubious. So I think, Sasha, it's up to you to present the case for. 
I I can understand why it might be difficult to see. I think in the storytelling, it's not much like a Sherlock Holmes because it's like more noir and like such and such and such. But there are a lot of character parallels between the Sherlock Holmes canon and this canon. You know, we do have a Sherlock Holmes and Eddie Valiant. We have a Watson. Some would say many Watsons, but I think the main Watson is Roger Rabbit. We have the character of Irene Adler, the woman that Sherlock kind of obsesses over after the the one story. That's Jessica Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Dolores, even though she is a love interest of Eddie Valiant, I see her as very much Mrs. Hudson, who is the housekeeper of Sherlock Holmes. And she's kind of a housekeeper role in this. And then we have a Moriarty, the big baddie of the Sherlock Holmes canon, and Judge Doom, someone who is as smart or sometimes a little more cunning than our Sherlock. Uh, I mean, I will say that in the pro column... It does better at some of the Sherlock Holmes movies we've seen at, like, having a mystery that, like, develops over the course of the story. Mm-hmm. Actually, I mean, why don't, we, why don't we do this? Why don't we go into ratings <gasps> first? And then, because I think we'll talk about a lot of the qualities that we associate with Sherlock Holmes in the ratings. And then we can, we, we can come to a conclusion after that. So, we have a wonderful rating scale. It is called the LGBTQ Scale. Which stands for loyalty to source material, grade of mystery, how how good is this mystery, how British is this film, total enjoyment, how much do we enjoy this, and then queerness, how queer is it? Oh yeah, queer subtext. <laughs> yeah, queer subtext, but how queer is it, really? So, start at the top, loyalty to source material. <laughs> yeah, not, a, not, a, not looking good for this one. So, well... Usually we interpret that as loyalty to source material being loyalty to the Sherlock Holmes canon. Mm-hmm. I mean, this isn't even loyal to the... Original book. To the book it's adapted from, which is called Who Censored Roger Rabbit, I think? Yeah. It's kind of its own little it's thing. It's kind of its own thing. I mean, I think maybe it gets a point for, like, including... Even though it isn't trying to adapt, I think maybe it should get a point for including a relationship between a Sherlock and a Watson and a case. And, like, you know, it, it's it's not doing nothing. It's not like we watched Shawshank Redemption and said, is this a Sherlock Holmes? You know? <laughs> Avatar the way of water. <laughs> right. It's, it's uh, obviously, you know, we picked something that, that has possible. How, how do you guys feel about giving it a one? I think a one's good. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty appropriate. All of these are out of five, by the way. Yes. Okay, so one in loyalty to source material. I would say a one to a two, because I think I made a great point in the, the many parallels between the characters. I think some of your I think some of your character parallels are a reach. Fine, we'll do a one. <laughs> like, you know, Dolores isn't really Mrs. Hudson. She doesn't own the building that Eddie lives in. She is more of a girlfriend, like in Sherlock Hound, than anything else. Mm-hmm. We also get like competing Watsons. Like this is, this is Sherlock who lost a Watson, and his brother who now has to like pick up a new Watson, which is not a dynamic that I'm accustomed to. So uh, yeah, I think I think not full marks. Okay, uh, grade of mystery. How good is this mystery? I think it's a pretty solid mystery. Oh yeah, I think this is a five. Yeah, out of five. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of twists and turns. I also find it easy to follow, but there's a lot of, like, new evidence that keeps getting presented. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of, like, like, there's time for the audience to start solving the case before the characters get there. Like, we learn information that we don't know how to put together for a while that Mm -hmm. clicks into place at the end. I think pretty good. What do do y'all think? I think I have in my notes written down somewhere that, like, it's a great mystery for kids, and it's, like, good for adults in the sense that, like, people like to feel smart. I feel called out. <laughs> now, Frankie, you say a three and a half. I say a three and a half. Why, why do you say three and a half? I think it gets way too complicated at the end. Way too muddled. Well, I, I will say that his, his plan doesn't make a lot of sense. I will agree with that. Yeah, that's, that's the, the issue with the mystery. He wants to hide a will that he doesn't know if it exists or not. So he's going to kill Mr. Maroon. I don't know why he got killed. And then he's going to kill Acme. I understand why he got killed. But I don't know why he killed Maroon. He, I guess because he was going to say something to Eddie, but... But without the document, it doesn't matter. Right. That's true. And so you need right. the document he, there. He could have just waited. Yeah. And, and Maroon was supportive. Maroon was going to sell his studio. That is true. So I don't know why Maroon dies. And then he buys... I think the way they drop hints at the beginning is good. And then when, it try, when they try to bring it all together, it gets a bit muddled. Because they never do explain Maroon. That's, that is fair. I think it might just be that I'm starved for a good mystery because we keep seeing Sherlock's that have the worst mysteries. <laughs> so this is the best mystery we've seen in a while. But I, I guess I agree that it doesn't mean that it's a perfect mystery. I think based off that, I'd, I'm comfortable giving a four out of five. Jordan, tie break. Yeah I'd, yeah, I'd agree with that. A nice little four? Yeah. Okay. Alrighty, four. Okay. <laughs> well, this is going to get a zero. Britishness. How British is this film? They hired Bob Hoskins, who was a British actor, and they make him do an American accent the entire time. <laughs> and he seems uncomfortable doing it the entire time. <laughs> It feels like the only way he could do it is if he talks in a gruffled voice. Right, it's like, tones. But this is also the same man who later will be doing a bad, like, Brooklyn Italian accent as Mario Mario in the Super Mario Brothers That's movie. true. People hate when he talks with his normal voice, like David Tennant. It's also a man who is acting with nobody around. Yeah, so true. I, th- I did think about that a couple times. It's like, he just did this alone, huh? He was just alone on a green screen being like, you're, you're going to put a movie in here, right? Well, not a green screen. They were like real sets, but they just had like a giant, like either like a foam ball or like a giant, like, or like a little like doll that looked like Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah. That's true for most of the movie. I'm thinking about the Toontown sequence, which is... Which oh, is, that was definitely green screen. Oh, I think it's actually blue screen. Yeah. We, I, we I can... think for the Bob Hoskins, because there is a British actor in this. No, 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 no. <laughs> they don't make, they don't let him be British. There's no British characters in this. Hey, but can, he's... I, can I reveal something to yeah. light your point, Sasha? Uh-huh. I had no idea Bob Hoskins was British. I think it's a zero. I think it has to be a zero. Fine. I will give it a zero in the British scale. If you were an alien and you came to to America and watch this movie for the first time, you would have no idea that Britain existed. And we still don't know if it does. We're still trying to figure that out. We're still trying to figure it out. The only evidence we have is by Epcot in the World Showcase. Yeah. But they might have made it up because they had an extra spot. (laughs) Yeah. So. I can neither confirm nor deny. (laughs) Total enjoyment. That's a five for me. 
I mean, we've gone above five before. I give it a ten. That's too high. No. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a little too high. It's a perfect film. It's a five, it's a five for me. I, I, yeah, I think I think it's a, I think it's a perfect film, but I don't think it's I don't think it exceeds five for me. Have we ever gone over five for total enjoyment? Yes, we have for Great Mouse Detective at a number six. Oh, I did like this more than I liked Great Mouse Detective. So, a seven? I would put it with Great Mouse Detective. I'd put it at a six. I, w- I don't think I'd go higher than that. Six and a half. Okay, well, what did the other pack rats say? Uh, I would, uh, since I have no beholding to Great Mouse Detective and the rating given previously, I'll give it a five. I, I would give it like a four. Like, it's good, I'd watch it again, but not more than, like, every couple years. I think that puts it at a five, then. I think if Jordan's going, if you're going above a five, Frank is going five, Jordan's going below, I think five. I said five. Okay. Fine. Queer subtext. (laughs) So, Betty Boop is a little gay. (laughs) This is probably the straightest movie we've ever seen. No, we've we've definitely had a zero in queer subtext before. Yeah, but it it was Gene Wilder in Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Younger Brother. That's true. Um, And this is better than that. This does end with a man kissing a male rabbit, an anthropomorphic male rabbit. Um, So even though it's, like, friendly, I think, like, there's a... Like, the the door to a queer reading is just cracked half an inch. I mean, Jessica Rabbit is a gay icon. That's true. And I would argue with you that uh, Roger Rabbit has bi-wife energy. That is true. That's true. I, I I think I think you could give it a one. <laughs> yes. In queer subtext, Frankie. I, I'll I'll agree and give it a one. Alrighty, tallying up the score out of a possible twenty five. Twenty five. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is at an eleven, which is so low. And I think tellingly, the only things it scored high in is enjoyment and mystery. Which makes me think maybe it's not a Sherlock. Like, this is a scale we made up to talk about what we liked in Sherlock Holmes stories. Yes. It's definitely not a Sherlock. But it has done better than Sherlock Holmes' smarter younger brother and Murder by Decree. Okay. So, Sasha, you gave the why this is a Sherlock pro-argument. Frankie, do you want to give the against? I would. I, I agree with Sasha there You're going to make the lawyer do it? <laughs> there are some similarities with character. With Eddie, the alcoholism, especially. Sherlock Holmes is a known addict. But Sherlock Holmes has an intelligence about him that Eddie does not have. Sherlock Holmes <laughs> also so solves mysteries. Eddie had this solved for him by Jessica and Dolores. And was just told everything. Sherlock also has, in the original form, he is a logical person with very little room for emotions. Eddie is all emotion. Eddie is as Hmm. similar to Sherlock Holmes and the way he behaves and solves mysteries and the way his stories operates in the way that every noir detective is because... Sherlock Holmes is the basis for most detective stories. But it's a very limited 
it's a very limited similarity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where there's going to be a baseline because he's so iconic and sets the bar for detective stories at the time. But it departs way too far to be considered a Sherlock Holmes story. I, I think what's interesting about Who Framed Roger Rabbit is that it is very intentionally aping a genre. It's an adaptation of the noir detective genre. It's adapting the noir films of the 1940s in a way, much more than it's adapting the book that it's supposed to be based on. You know, the detective with a dark past, with a drinking problem, who is this like sort of failed masculine ideal, does feel way more noir than it does Sherlock Holmes, who like has relationships with the police and you know, a strange relationship with dames. Dames. And and like debts and like takes odd jobs to make money and you know, like like he's he's he owes Dolores a lot of money at the beginning of this movie and that's why he takes the job that she stole from the till of the bar. So Sherlock Holmes would never. I think that's true. So I mean Mythbusters plausible, Mythbusters busted. I mean, I think plausible. I mean, here's the thing is that I think that there are things that are much that get less right that call themselves Sherlock's. Like we watched House MD mm-hmm. and that show has ab- about this degree of like character lining up. Yeah. And like I think does worse at the mysteries, does worse at having like central male-male relationship between a detective and a sidekick. So I'd be willing to say plausible, but we do not confer the rank of Sherlock upon but Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (laughs) Final thoughts? Not a final thought, but definitely an important piece of Roger Rabbit history that I forgot about. Disney used to have this thing called Pleasure Island. Yes. And Jessica Rabbit was the mascot. Oh, it was part of their nightclub district. So weird. I would love to see more love in the parks for this property. I feel like there's a lot they could do with it. I don't know. I feel like it is beloved. You know, I I don't need them to have a new big ride or something, but like activations, I wouldn't mind. Here's what we need to do as Disney yeah. fans. Jordan, are you ready? Here's what we need to do. Yes. We need to yeah. pressure them to put more Who Framed Roger Rabbit like love and appreciation within the parks and we also have to pressure them to fix journey into imagination well actually this might be a route i mean honestly with journey with journey into imagination i feel like disney was like oh shit the figment popcorn bucket so really what we need them to do is have a a roger rabbit popcorn bucket and then the meet and greet and then they'll think about it got it (laughs) yeah this is the 10-year path to disneyland being renamed toontown I do have some great news for you, probably because of the Disney 100. There has been an influx of Roger Rabbit merch, and by influx, I mean it's four pins, but it's probably just because it's the Disney 100. I mean, if any a time to bring him back, it would be this time, you know? Because, like, if we're going to celebrate all of Disney, let's celebrate all of Disney. I mean, they'll find a new reason to celebrate all of Disney in a couple of years. They, 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 they do it pretty often. <laughs> Jordan and Frankie, thank you so much for being on Baker Street Regulars. There'll be a link to uh, the Pack Rats and Nothing to See Here. Yeah. In the description of the episode. Is there anywhere else people should find you? We have an Instagram <laughs> for Nothing to See Here, which is Nothing to See Here Pod. Next week, we are diving back into the original 
Arthur Conan Doyle canon with two more short stories. And the week after that, we're watching The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which is the Billy Wilder film where they're actually kind of gay? <gasps> Question mark? Question mark? I've never seen it. I'm looking forward to it a lot. So you can look forward to that. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, we've been your Baker Street regulars. And we'll see you next time. 